and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we left off having begun Ephesians chapter 2. And specifically, we began to deal with the section that tells us that we've been made alive in Christ. That even when we were dead in sins, God in His mercy and grace made us alive. And I'd like to go now and pick this up and... Well, to just get a little running start in it, we'll, we'll start again back up a little bit to verse 4. But God, who is, or being rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. By what? Grace. By grace. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that into the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In verse 7, that word show means to put on display. It's to exhibit. It's to exhibit. And we will be an exhibit of God's grace. God will point at us up in heaven and, and they'll say, you see, he'll, see how big my grace is? This guy got in. See how big my grace is? She got in. That's right. But it is going to show the magnitude of God's grace. And we are. We do show the magnitude of God's grace and it's not to knock us compared to anybody else. Um, you know, on, on most days I think I'd Stand, come out pretty favorably towards Israel through a lot, most of their history. But it's to show that the reason why we're there is because it's simply God's divine favor. We did nothing to deserve it or earn it. And that's what it goes on to show in, in very, very clear, plain language. Verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith. By grace are ye saved through believing. It's not our believing that earned it, but through believing we tapped into it. We believed unto it. And by that grace of God, we're saved. We're saved. We're saved from the wrath to come. We're saved from being without God. We're saved from the you know, fate of the un, uh, unjust. We are saved by God's grace. We're heaven-bound, and literally all hell can't stop us from going. And that includes yourself. <laughs> that includes yourself. There's nothing that you can do that will jeopardize that. By grace, you are saved. Grace means it is unearned. And that's what it says here. Verse 9. Not of works... Did I finish? By grace you are saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift. It's a gift. 
How many of you ever get gifts at your birthday or Christmas time? Okay. Do they tip? Do people, when they give you gifts, typically ask you to, to now give them something in return for that? No. Do they ask you to pay for it? Okay. I'd like to give you this wonderful gift of this new television set that will cost you five hundred dollars. Is, is, has anybody ever had that happen to them? No. You know, here's a nice sweater. You'll notice the price tag I left on it so that you can pay for it. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It's a gift. It is a gift. And a gift is a gift. A gift is something that is just given. And it's not of works. Works is, tra- is, is put in there opposite of a gift. The opposite of being a gift is to earn it. On the other hand, let's say you, know, you work hard all week long at your job. And you're you know, out there and you're sweating and you're working hard and the boss comes along at the end of the week with your pay envelope and he says, I got a little gift for you. Here you go. Now, whether you say it or not, because you may want to keep the job another week, you probably would be thinking, what do you mean a gift? I worked hard for this money. I worked very hard for this money. It's not a gift. I earned it because works earns you something. There, those two are in contrast. Gift and works. Gift and works. And let me ask you something. If, is it any different if you were given this gift and afterward you were told that you were supposed to work to keep it? Is that any different? No. You know, here's, here's this wonderful computer. This is a gift. Now, if you'd like to keep it, then every month you need to work and send me a $100 payment. Is that a gift? No. Well, that's rent own, right? Or credit, one of, the, one of the two. But it's not a gift. It's not a gift. It's not a gift if you have to earn it beforehand, and it's not a gift if you have to work to keep it. And I make that distinction because some people believe the former and some people believe the latter. There are people that believe that you have to earn salvation. There are others that believe that salvation is a gift, but if you want to keep it, you've got to keep working or you lose it. Well, that's no more a gift than the other way around, right? We'd understand that in the material realm, no question. If some sharp, fast-talking salesman comes along and tries to pawn something off on you on that way, you're not buying it, are you? No. No. But... When it comes to Christianity, people will take double talk a lot easier sometimes. It's very clear. And if this isn't clear enough for you, then go back and read Galatians. Go back and read Galatians, the epistle that precedes this one. Because if this isn't clear, and it is clear, but if it doesn't hit you, go in enough detail, if it doesn't give you enough of an argument, then read the argument that's laid out in Galatians because that was specifically to correct the doctrinal error that crept in concerning that in the church. And man, Galatians really, really nails it. Galatians really nails it. Galatians says that if you think you're justified by anything you do, then you make the cross of Christ of none effect. You're saying, Jesus Christ, you didn't accomplish anything. You wasted your time. You wasted your life giving it on the cross. That's, that is, in effect, what you say when you believe that you somehow can do something to earn it. 
It's no question about it. It's nothing that we can do to earn it. And therefore, we don't have to go through life always wondering, am I, am I going to heaven? Have I backslid? Have I been too bad? Have I fallen off the whatever and now I'm back in... None of that. We cannot lose that. You cannot lose your sonship with God any more than you can lose your sonship with your earthly father. Now, your earthly father may have kicked you out of the house or it still might happen, I don't know. But... God will not ever do that. And even with your earthly father, if he said, you, that's it, you know, I'm done with you. Are you no longer his son? No, you're still his son. He might not want to claim you. He might be ashamed of you, but you're still his son. With God, it's even greater than that because not only are we still his sons, but God's never ashamed of us no matter what we do. Why? Because we're so good. No, because Jesus Christ was so good. It is all about Christ, not me, not you. It was all about what Jesus Christ did. That's it. That's the end of the story. It's how great he was and what he did and what a complete Savior he was. He was our substitute. He was our substitute for sin and the consequences of it. We are identified with him. When he was crucified, we were crucified with him. When he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he arose, we arose with him. And now he is seated in the heavenlies, and we just saw we are seated with him. We can no easier be displaced from that position than he can. It would take God throwing him out to get rid of us because we are in him. We are in him, according to Ephesians. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. One translation has it, we are his masterpiece. His masterpiece. It's not just any old work. We're his masterpiece. We're this great accomplishment that God did in Christ. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God's intent would be that we would do good works, but it's not by those good works that we achieve or earn salvation. But God wants us to do good works. He doesn't want all of this to you know, be so that we just make it an occasion to the flesh, like it also says in Galatians, but rather that the heart of God would be that we so understand and recognize and appreciate what he did for us, that we would want to do something in return. In 1975, I went out on a program called Wow Ambassador, where I was sent with three other people to some city. It ended up being Norfolk, but when I signed the line, it could have been any city in the United States, with, the, with a year-long commitment to the entire time I was there Witness, speak God's word, start a fellowship. 
And when I did this, my picture of what I was signing up for was the only thing I, I kind of knew about it was based on some article I had read. And I'll have to, I, I keep saying, and one of these days I'm, I will go back and read the article, because the only thing I remember from the article, the only thing that really hit me, was that everybody that did this lived on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and fought with each other all the time. And if that sounds real appealing to you, um, it, it didn't sound real appealing to me at the time. <laughs> but it didn't matter what it was going to be I decided to do this because I was, at that point, it had struck me, I had realized how great God was in my life and all that he had done for me. And I was so thankful, so incredibly thankful for what God did for me that I made that commitment to just give a year of my life to him. Now, in reality, the commitment I made was more than a year. In reality, at the same time, or even before that, I made a commitment to go in another program that the purpose of it was a lifetime, the Wake or a lifetime of Christian service. And I've endeavored to the best of my ability for my entire life, for over 40-some years now, to do that. Why? Because I recognized what God had done. You see, I, I think it's I think it's really the way that God built us that when we, it really hits you, when it really gets to your heart, when you really see that, you just want to do something in return. Did you ever have somebody really bend over backwards for you, really go out of their way to help you, really do something nice? Did did that make you want to do something for them in return? Did it make you feel like? Gee, I'd really like to do... They've, they've been so great to me. I'd like to do something in return. Yes. Sure. Sure. And that's, that's kind of the way that we're built. And that's what God intended should be the case. That we should live unto good works. That we shouldn't just live for ourselves. That doesn't mean you have to follow the same course I did. That course may not even be available. But it's in some way to do that which would be loving to others in some way that we would do service for God. Well, we'll continue here. Verse 11. Wherefore, as a result of that, okay, as a result of, of what? Of all that, that God did, of how we're saved by grace and how this has been done unto good works. Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That is everybody's past if you're not a Jew. <laughs> if, if your past was that you were not a Jew, then that's what you were. Now, maybe that was for a very short time if you were born into a Christian family. But nevertheless, at one point, that's who you were. You were the uncircumcision. The uncircumcision is not, you know, you may have been circumcised when you were, you know, before you left the hospital, but in the way that this is being used here, it's being used figuratively to represent those that are not the circumcision, meaning Israel. You weren't, we weren't part of Israel. We were not Jews. We were Gentiles, most of us. And because of that, up until the time of what Christ accomplished, 
we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. And there were all kinds of promises to Israel. You know, you go back and read it. God made certain covenants with Abraham. He made certain covenants with, with Jacob, Israel. And these were certain promises, covenants that he made. But none of that applied to us. You go and read the Gospels, read the Gospels. Gentiles were not in good standing during the Gospels. People want to throw themselves in the Gospels. Well, Gentiles were not in good standing during that time. There was a woman that brought her, her child to, to Jesus Christ and asked for healing. And, and, and she was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. And you know what he said to her? He said, it's not right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. <laughs> How would you like that? Jesus, would you heal me? Well, it's not right that I would give the children's food to the dogs. Okay? That's what he's saying to her. That's what he said to her. And her response to that was, well, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then she got, the child got healed. Then the child got healed. But that was the case. He was not sent to everyone. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It doesn't really, the rest of us don't get in until after the day of Pentecost. That's when it happens. That's when it happens. But this is then the great mystery. The great mystery, what even Jesus Christ himself did not know at that time, because had he known it, then Satan would have not crucified the Lord of glory. You read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That had he known it, he wouldn't have crucified him. What the great mystery is, is that the Jew and the Gentile would both become one. And that's what it begins to unfold more in these verses. That at one time, we were without Christ. We were strangers from the covenants. We had no hope. No hope. You know, people sometimes feel in life because of the circumstances of life that they have no hope. And that's a very, very dark place to go. That's a very bleak feeling to feel like you have no hope. That there's just no hope of anything getting better. Well, that's where we all were at until Christ came along. Now, whether you recognize that or not, you had no great hope because you didn't have the hope. You didn't have the hope of Christ's return. So you may have enjoyed the party for a moment, but that would be a, you know, relatively speaking, very short-lived party when you put that up against the scheme of eternity. Without Christ, there wasn't the hope. There wasn't the hope of an afterlife. There wasn't the hope of being heaven-bound. There wasn't the hope of eternal life. There was none of that for us. You know, that may be hard to wrap your brain around when you're 23 years old and you're young and you're strong and it seems like you're going to live forever. But as time goes on, I, you kind of appreciate the idea more and more that there is something more than just this very short, fleeting life. And something greater than what this life brings, whether it's brought you happiness or heartache. Be, either way, there's a greater hope. A greater hope of what this life is to come is. And when that hope lives within you, then this life now begins to greatly improve. Mm. When your scale of values changes, 
when you don't get so shook about every, what does it say, light affliction what is, which is but for a moment, then you can take things a little more in stride. When you realize that there's something more, so much greater coming, then the pressure of this bad situation or that bad situation, that yeah, they come up, they happen. Stuff happens to be polite. <laughs> but it's just that light affliction which is but for a moment. We have this great hope. This great hope. And you know what? Today could be the day that we hear that trumpet sound. Today could be the day that we'll meet him in the air. It can happen at any time. One thing I know is it will happen, and when it does, then what a great fulfillment of that hope we'll have. And we are without God in this world. Without God, without God. We weren't without the adversary. <laughs> and you may have recognized that one. We weren't without the adversary, the God of this world, the devil. He was there. And whether he was content to let you, you know, just be a pawn and, and keep you happy for a bit, or whether he wanted to treat you like Job, and that's, you read, read Job, it's Satan that does all that stuff to him. One way or the other, we had him, but what we did not have was we did not have God. We did not have God. Aren't you glad that all changed? Yes. Verse 13. But now, now, not someday, maybe in the future, perhaps, now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made near, nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one. Talking about the Jew and the Gentile. He's made both one. And hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. In the temple, there was a wall. There was a wall in the temple where the Gentiles could not go past that wall. It was a courtyard that the Gentiles could be in, but they couldn't go in farther than that. There was the court of the Gentiles. But he broke that down so that there wasn't any separation between Jew and Gentile. And, it'll go on to tell you, he also got rid of the, tore the veil and, and got rid of the separation between man and God. Verse 15 having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain, of two, one new man, so making peace. He made peace. Peace between us and God. And until you have peace with God, you're going to have a real hard time having peace with anybody else, any real peace. He made peace by getting rid of the enmity. What was the enmity, according to that verse? If you can't answer it, take a look at it. What was the enmity, according to that verse? Read it. Law, yep. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Jesus Christ, through his flesh, abolished the law contained in ordinances. That was what caused enmity because man always fell short. 
Again, you can get, understand this in greater detail by going back and reading what precedes it, and that in this case is Romans. And Romans talks about that in great detail, about how the law fell short because of the weakness of man. But Jesus Christ fulfilled it, and when he, he did it all, man couldn't. You couldn't do it all. I couldn't do it all. I knew that by the time I was, I think, 14. <laughs> by the time I was 14, I said, there's no way I can earn this. There's no way I can do all the law. I, I, I know where I'm headed, so I may as well just have a good time going. <laughs> no man could but Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ did it, and he abolished the law. He abolished it. If you abolish a law... Do you, are you still under that law? No. You know, if they, you know, abolish, okay, they, at one point they decided it was a good idea to, uh, to prohibit alcohol. And if you drank alcohol at that point, they could throw you in jail, right? And then they repealed that and they abolished that law. Now, whether you think it's a good idea or not, now alcohol, you can drink it. That law no longer exists. All of this law, we're not under it anymore. We live under greater law, the law of love, but we are not under that old law. Verse 16, And that he might reconcile both, that Jew and that Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which are far off, and to them that were nigh. Peace, you know, peace. The epistle begins with grace and peace, and look at how much detail here shows us how great that grace and peace is. We, the first part of this, we looked a lot at grace, and here it's talking a lot about peace, and understanding why we have grace, and why we have peace. We need to enjoy it. We need to enjoy both. We need to not allow ourselves to be robbed of the peace of God by all the just petty nonsense of life. And we need to not allow ourselves to be robbed of the grace of God by thinking that everything is on us and that God won't simply do things because he loves us. Verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Both the Jew and the Gentile have access, direct access unto God. Verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer a foreigner. You're no longer somebody that's on the outside of the pale. You're no longer somebody that's, that's looking in but you are part of the family of God, the royal household of God, living in the living room of God. That's, wh that's where you are. You're not just some stranger or foreigner. You have everything that God has to give to his family. And we have that intimacy with him as our father. Boy, what a close, vital relationship with him we have. And if you want to think Feel that relationship. If you want to enjoy that relationship, if you want that to hit your mind and your heart with so much impact that it just helps you to weather every storm, 
that it means everything to you. And it can. It can. If you want to, then the way you accomplish that is having God open the eyes of your understanding to these truths. Think on these things. Meditate on them. Just spend time. Some of the greatest hours I've spent have just been meditating on these. You know, I talked about that going out. Wow, you know what the greatest part of that? There was a lot. It turned out to be a great year. I shouldn't have told you that. It turned out to be a great year, this year I gave to God. (laughs) Oh, there was challenges, that's for sure. There were great challenges. But you know what made it especially great was the relationship I developed with God as I put myself out there, as I gave, as I served. And I just drew so close to God. And, and there, were, there were days when I would just sit on the beach and for hours just think about what it meant to be a son of God. What, it, what all these truths meant. And I would just think about that for hours on end. You know, when you, when you really do that, when you really let it sink into your heart, then... God becomes the most important one to you. He becomes the most special. And you know what's so wonderful about that? He'll never leave you. He'll never let you down. You can love people, and people can love you. But there's no one that you can absolutely say they'll never let you down, they'll never leave you. Now, I trust that my wife's not going to leave me tomorrow or, or the next day or at any time. But can I say without absolutely no shadow of a doubt that, no, I can't. That's just not life. And even if she didn't leave me intentionally, you know, life comes to an end. And one of us is someday, unless we, you know, decide to somehow, oh, that like wonderful notebook ending, you know, go together. (laughs) Isn't it the notebook that they do that in? Huh? Yeah. (laughs) Not to knock the movie, but you know, it's, it's, life has heartaches. People do let you down, but God never will. Well, I better finish it. And you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner, in whom all the building fitly framed together growth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And that's where we'll end, and next week we're going to pick up and look at that in great detail, what it means to be God's dwelling place. God bless you. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.